I think whenever you get good at something, whenever you become an expert, I suppose, in a field, people are always curious about it and they always want to know how you do what you do. And there's always a portion of people that will pay you for that knowledge. And not only do they pay you for your knowledge, they will pay you for your solutions. And so people wanted to start using our e-commerce platform. People wanted to start using our warehouse for fulfillment services. Out of this one idea, this business jersey, several things started to grow. Welcome back to another episode of the Debutify podcast. Today, I spoke with Matt Edmondson, Managing Director of Curious Digital. We go through the challenges of his first startup, talk about his love of community and giving people opportunities, leadership, mentors, how to run a company effectively. He was an incredibly experienced e-commerce entrepreneur, so I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, really good. Yeah, what time is it in uh, the UK right now? Uh, four o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon. So you uh, whereabouts are you based? Are you in Liverpool? I am, so yes, yeah, sunny Liverpool. Uh, wow, I say sunny. That's uh, that's not true. Yeah, yeah, take, take, that, take that with a <laughs> pinch of salt. I've been there. <laughs> oh, you've been to Liverpool. How come you've been to Liverpool? Oh, I'm from Plymouth. Oh, okay, is that where you are now? No, I'm in uh, Massachusetts. So there's a story from Plymouth to Massachusetts, sounds like a book title. Yeah, a quick summary is my dad moved us to New Zealand. He was in the Bosnian conflict and he was kind of getting roped into going to sea a lot. So we just went to New Zealand because it's the most peaceful place. I'm here because I met my girlfriend in Kenya four years ago. (laughs) (laughs) That's a short version. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to. I think my journey is pretty dull. I grew up in Derby, lived in the States and then came back to Liverpool and have stayed really. So true, in, com- true. in comparison, it's, it's a little bit different. Yeah. What about yourself? I wanted to ask you this later, but like what, what, what kind of lessons have you learned from hosting the podcast? Yeah. The podcast has been brilliant. I've been doing it for, I guess, what, two, two coming up three years now. And like you say, Connor, the, the, the people that you meet are extraordinary. The ability to network is quite extraordinary as a result. And I, I found that really fascinating in terms of the doors that has opened to the point now where we haven't done it yet, but in the next, I guess, four months, we're about to launch a podcast agency. Yeah, just all the lessons that we've learned from it. My experience, Connor, is if you get good at anything in life, people often come to you and say, how did you do that? Eventually, some of those people will pay you money to tell them how you did that. Uh, you know, when you get really good at something. So it made sense, actually, to start doing the podcast agency because the the way that we benefit from it is not something that you normally see publicized. And so I'm never really concerned, for example, with who listens to the show as opposed to who the guest is on the show. Do you see what I mean? It's like when you think about it slightly differently like that, you get access to a caliber of people, which is just unbelievable. And so we're going to launch a new podcast in... November. I'm saying that with a slight hesitancy because I'm not entirely sure the date's been confirmed. But we're going to do a new podcast in November. Again, just love it. Love it as a medium. Love it as a way to network. Love it as a way to meet people. Um, And so the second podcast is going to be more leadership focused, which will put me in touch with people maybe slightly outside of the e-commerce sphere, which I think will be quite good. Yeah, love it. Love it. Absolutely love it. Learned a lot. So when you say a podcast agency, is that like, you know, D to C, people are going to come to you and what is it going to be like a course or is it going to be like a mentoring call or? No, the, the way we're going to do it is um, we're going to just do it as a done for you service, right? So um, oh, right, same yeah. with, basically we, we learn this with e-commerce. We have our own e-commerce businesses, but again, the same story. After a while, people come to you and say, how do you do what you do? You tell them, you do the coaching. 
And then after a while of doing coaching, the people that you do coaching with come back to you and say, can you just do it for us? Uh, and so you end up doing it for them. So you create this done for you business. And that's what's happened with e-commerce uh, with one of our companies. But the so I anticipate it's going to happen again with a podcast. So I'm just going straight to done for you. <laughs> so we're going to aim it much more at leaders, CEOs, the guys that want podcasts, the guys that want to use it as a form of networking. Because podcasting, as you know, opens doors like nothing else I've seen to extraordinary people. You know, I know a lot of CEOs, a lot of leaders who love the idea of podcasting, but go, man, alive. It scares me or I don't, I'm, I'm happy to sit to talk to people, but I don't want to do X, Y, and Z. And so we're like, we'll just do that for you. We'll just do all the heavy lifting. And so we'll help them create the strategy. We'll help them figure out what it is they want to get out of it, find the right guests, and then we'll take care of most of it, uh, to be honest with you, from production, graphics, sounds, all that sort of stuff. The team that we've got over here is pretty good now from their e-commerce podcast. So yeah, we take care of all of that and we'll make it easy for the guys just to go, okay, I'm just going to do this interview. And that's it. These guys take care of everything else. And so that's what we're going to do. So you're, you've had your fingers in quite a few pies. I, I just was uh, looking at your LinkedIn two weeks ago. It's, it's quite impressive. Can you run me through your early life before you started working? Like That's always an interesting story. Well, apart from the obvious school, college, and uni, one of the things that I did after I finished my A-level, so I was 18, I went and lived in the States. I worked in a children's home. Uh, mm. took some time out and worked in a children's home, which was very unexpected. It's not what I expected to do. It was just the way it worked out is the reality of it. And so I ended up working in North Carolina in a children's home in a small town <laughs> that was very, very different to where I grew up in the UK. And it just opened my eyes to go, you know what? The world is bigger than me and it is bigger in this small part in which I live. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. One that was just life-changing. And so following that, I came back to uni, got involved in uni, met some of the most extraordinary people here in Liverpool. So I decided to stay, met my wife here. My kids are all scousers. And that was that. Was that. I, I volunteered um, before hitting that. I volunteered for another year after uni. And then I hit the workplace. And I just knew straight away I was going to be in business. Uh, I, I mean, I'd known since I was a young guy, I suppose I was going to do something. And so I managed to scrounge a job with, uh, well, actually, I didn't scrounge. I was offered the job uh, with a friend of mine. He was an entrepreneur. He still is an entrepreneur, actually. And we're still very, very good friends. He now lives in New Zealand, funnily enough, been over several times to see him. He was a businessman that I admired. And so I thought, you know what? I know nothing about business. So why don't I go work for him for a little while and get some kind of mentoring going on? Uh, and so I did. I worked for him for five years, I think it was. And then he eventually sold the business, which we built. That's when he moved to New Zealand. And then that's when I went off and did new ventures. So that's, yeah, my kind of backstory. What was your first startup? I know that you, I've got it written down here, £10,000 in sales in the first week, £400,000 in the first year of your first e-commerce store. But did you have a startup before that? Oh, yeah, that was definitely not my startup. The first ever online business we did uh, was called Tanmad. <laughs> okay. And Tan Mad was literally just me uh, in 2002. I'd been writing web code for maybe three or four years at this point, right? And I'd, I'd been doing it on the side. I'd been growing my little bookkeeping business and I had 
we started doing websites because that was the time when you know websites started taking off a little bit. And so I was doing these websites on the side. And then I thought, well, I'm just gonna, you know, this whole e-commerce thing seems interesting to me. So I thought I would thought I'd give it a go. And so our first e-commerce website was called Tenmad. And it was just literally me writing a bit of code to see whether or not I could make the code work. And I just called a friend of mine who I knew from the, the years I was working with Simon. He sold tanning products and, and tanning as in sun tanning not tanning as yeah, in yeah. leather but there were these kind of lotions that you would that people would put on their skin before going on sunbeds to get a darker tan quicker and so very, I thought, very liverpool yeah very very liverpool uh, <laughs> and so i thought well i don't know anything about the products but that was the only one that i could think of to source quickly just to try an idea and so um I said to my friend, I said, do you mind if I had to sell those online? And I tell you what, I'll send you the address of somebody that orders it. And you ship them out to them if that's okay. Or you can ship them to me and then I'll ship them out. It's just an experiment. And yeah. he was super cool. He was super gracious. He was like, yeah, sure. No problem, Matt. Let's do whatever. They ended up buying the website from me six months after launching it. So He bought um, it off you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did. He bought it off me. So <laughs> still just one of those things. It's sort of it, people started going online to buy tannin products. I mean, people started going online to buy everything. So we started to look at everything at this point. We looked at pet products. We looked at hair. I mean, there was there were so many things that we tried. Chunk of them we found out. We did gift site. I mean, there were so many things. Just so many things. But it was fun. Yeah. That was my sort of startup into e-commerce. I mean, obviously, I'm a lot younger than you. Can you tell me what it was like in the early 2000s? Why, why, why obviously? I just... <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't have the facial hair. That's the, the indicator. Yeah, the grey facial hair. That's the indicator. I'm actually 14. <laughs> Brilliant. I've seen pictures and videos of old websites, but like, what was it like? What were like banner ads, paid ads like back then? What was it like being a, you know, an e-commerce store? It was, crazy. it was crazy complicated because no one, no one really knew anything about, I mean, if you think about what you had to do to take somebody's credit card, we had, I don't know if you ever saw them, uh, maybe you're, if you're, Listeners are of a certain age, a certain demographic. They will know exactly what I what I mean. There used to be a machine, right, that you would put a slip, you'd write the information in from the credit card on the slip, and then you'd whaz across it back and forth, and it would make this really interesting noise. Uh, and then you would tear part of that slip of paper off and give it to the customer, and you'd tear part of the slip of paper off and you'd give that to the bank. People would email us and affect their credit card numbers. We would handwrite out these credit card notes, swipe them in the machine. I'd have to send one off to the bank and I'd send one back to the customer. And that's how you, I mean, it was crazy. When you think about now, you can just pay somebody with a mobile phone. You can just tap it and the money's transferred. They had the whole, you, you had the whole thing. Like you had the CRV, you had the like security code. Oh yeah, they give you the whole credit card. Every, and then you, you're you just trusted to go, well, it was 15 pounds. Yeah, basically. That's crazy. Uh, and you can see they, why grandparents get freaked out by phone calls and people asking them for their credit card. Oh, you can, yeah, yeah. I mean, you think about where it's come from, right? Because it just it just never ever happened. I mean, a lot of the orders that we would get back then, people would send us checks. You know, they would they'd place the order online, but then they'd choose that I'm going to send you a check button, and so they post you a check. 
you know, a piece of paper saying I promised to pay tan man 20 quid or whatever it was. And so, yeah, it was very, very different. The world was not geared for selling online at all back then. And it was complicated to try and explain to people what you were doing. It really was. But people, I mean, it caught on pretty quick and everyone sort of caught up. So I remember, I remember the first time you, you could just connect the credit card information straight to the bank and I didn't have to do anything. And it was like, oh, wow, this is just brilliant. It just appears in my account. Several years, PayPal, what a revelation that was. So the, the things that we all take for granted now was, I mean, it, it's funny, I was looking yesterday at some web code, uh, a code for a website, and the amount of code now on a web page is unbelievable. The, the the sheer quantity of code required. And you'll know this better than anyone with your, you know, with your theme. The code behind that is extraordinary. I mean, millions and millions of lines. When I was writing websites, there was no JavaScript, there was no CSS. There, I mean, it was it was hundreds of lines of code, not millions. Do you know I mean the amount of code to make stuff work? was so much less but then design wasn't so much of a big issue people just were like wow there's a website i can i can they wanted it quick because you know like your computer in the cupboard it had dial up you couldn't yeah you, you yeah. wanted to get on and you wanted to get off because you had to pay the phone bill right you got charged for every minute you were online and so there was no broadband there was no high speed internet images really screwed everything up and so yeah it was <laughs> it's a really phenomenal time Really very basic, very dull, but very quick, lightweight websites. That's interesting that there's no images. Like, I, I can't imagine. That's like the worst social proof. You can't even see the product. When you're, yeah, when I mean, you would put, you'd put a very small thumbnail of the product on there, and then you'd have a, a link which says click to see more, which no one would ever click because... It just sounds you, dodgy. You'd have to download it. It would appear like a line at a time as it was down. It would take like five minutes to get the I do remember that, yeah. It was just crazy. Proper, proper crazy. And things that you had to do, like uh, if you wanted a menu, say at the top of the page, you would create a button um, in something called Fireworks. Fireworks was like state-of-the-art software at this point. And Fireworks was like a graphics program and you'd create the image in Fireworks and then you'd slice it and you could slice this thing up and it would create the exact size image that you need. And then you'd go back to that image You'd alter the image so that when on the computer code, you'd have two images and that's how you did mouse overs. And so it was like, well, show this image here. But when when it ho- when someone hovers over it, show this image here. And everyone was like, this is amazing. Uh, this technology, which allows you to show somebody that they're hovering over something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, man, crazy times, crazy times, but just good fun. Now you can put augmented reality version of the product on your desk. You can. And you know what? If you've seen that um, way back or something like that. I yeah, yeah, yeah the, the archive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wayback machine. Yeah, yeah. There is uh, not the original, original Tamad site on that, but... There is the second version of the Ten Mad site still on. Oh, check the it out, machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're you're initially coding for these sites. I mean, I guess you were kind of just doing you know jack of all trades. Was there a moment when you kind of realized I'm going to bring people on? I'm going to become more of the leader, or you know, walk me through the chronology there. Yeah, what happened was we employed a guy called Mark. Mark still works for me today, right? He's he's still with me. And Mark was fresh out of uni, fresh faced, had an electronics degree a long time ago 12 15 years ago now like i say we had this bookkeeping business but we're also doing this sort of website stuff on the side i started to train mark on writing computer code because i was like i need some help to do this and so i was like i'll just train mark on how to do it and how to use the software that we use which was like dreamweaver and fireworks and stuff like this back at the time and what happened was but i think because mark's mark's brain is wired 
like a coder's his brain is wired, if that makes sense. I think there's a certain wiring in people that that gives them a real understanding Analytic. of what's going. Yeah, yeah. My son has it much more than me, and so it became apparent very quickly that Mark Mark was much better at coding than I was, and so I was like, "This is awesome." So I just literally went like this to Mark Wallop. <laughs> Uh, so it was about 2000, I'm guessing it was about 2008, 2009, when I sort of handed the reins over to Mark and I wasn't really involved in anything. I do little bits here and there, but I haven't coded properly for a long time, not on an e-commerce website, not on anything that matters. <laughs> yeah, Mark became our head of, our head of design. And so that, that sort of started that journey, really. But yeah, we were starting to get quite busy quite quickly. And so... That's when we took on help. Mark's brilliant. Yeah, like I say, still with us. Still writing all the websites now. Okay, cool. So was that for Tan Mad? Or no. did you just start jumping into other projects? Yeah, yeah. So by this time, by the time Mark had joined us, we were, um, Jersey Beauty Company had started. And Jersey was really our first significant e-commerce site. It was the one that really sort of took off quite quickly. And we started to get quite busy with it. And so that's when we were like, okay. I mean, Mark was with us at this point. He was doing a few bits and bobs, like admin, bookkeeping. He was doing everything, to be fair. We were a small business. There's only three of us. And um, he was one of them. Yeah, but by the time Jersey hit and started to take off, then that's when Mark, in effect, became full-time on that website. And that's where he really learned um, to hone his programming skills for e-commerce. How long did you run Jersey for? Or, I mean, I know that it's still up, but like when I look at your LinkedIn page, it's like Jersey, present, and then you've also got like Orion or Arion, I'm not sure how you say it. And then you've also got Curious. So like when you're running this successful e-commerce store, are you going, I'm, I'm going to, you know, take on some more work. I'm going to branch <laughs> out or, or what happened there that made you change things? It's an interesting one, isn't it? It's like I said earlier, you know, with Jersey, I don't own Jersey anymore. We sold that last year. Um, okay. One of our competitors bought Jersey. Great guy, great company, uh, and you know, doing great things with it. And it's, it was probably about time actually that they that it had new leadership. Um, I'd been involved for fifteen years. Yeah, Jersey was is one of those things where you learn a lot. You have to learn a lot very quickly because you go from zero to a hundred miles an hour like within three seconds. And so, it's a great problem to have because there's so much chaos and it's just constant expansion. At one point, we were fifty four staff. I mean, it was just going nuts, just more, let's get more people in the warehouse, let's do this, this, this. and trying to keep hold of the reins of, of that. And so what happened was more and more people were coming to me and saying, how do I, how do you do what you do? And can I do it? And so the first person that came to me and asked me that question, I said, well, let's have a go and see what happens. Let's see if I can help you. Right. Um, and then the second person that came to me and asked me that question, I said, yeah, I can see I'm going to help you, but I'm going to charge you a little bit of money for it because it worked last time. And they were like, okay. And then I just kept increasing the amount of money I charge people whenever they would come to me and ask for help. And so I think whenever you get good at something, whenever you become an expert, I suppose, in a field, people are always curious about it and they always want to know how you do what you do. And there's always a portion of people that will pay you for that knowledge. And not only do they pay you for your knowledge, they will pay you for your solutions. 
And so people wanted to start using our e-commerce platform. People wanted to start using our warehouse for fulfillment services. And so out of this one idea, this business jersey, several things started to grow and everything started to grow well on its own, if that makes sense. So I, didn't, I don't think I went looking for it, but it was a, I think it's a consequence of when you're good at something there is an opportunity to share that and do that well. So, and you've seen this, right? Take the beautify. There is something which you have got, you're constantly getting better at it and people are willing to pay you money to use your solution, right? For a particular problem that they have. Your whole business is built on that premise. And as you get better and better at it, you get more and more subscribers. It's the way it is. It becomes like self-fulfilling prophecy in some respects. And so your growth curve is geometric. And it was exactly the same, you know, with me in e-commerce. It was that was exactly what was happening. And we started dabbling all these different areas. And it was just crazy but fun. So when you've run all of these things, like do you have any models or concepts, you know, as a leader that you apply? You do. And I think when we started with Jersey, you had I had in my head a loose framework, right? A theory of e-commerce, for want of a better expression. And then when you start helping other people and you're coaching other people in e-commerce, that framework gets honed and, and you kind of and you start to see it work in different industries. And so you can get to prove it and understand it. And so yeah, a lot of the stuff that we use now in the business is stuff, I guess, that we've just learned in the trenches. And so I think there are seven key areas of e-commerce. Um, I think there's a very definite e-commerce journey that people take. I use something called cycles, e-commerce cycles in our business, which really helps us keep focus, keep on track. So yeah, there's there's a there's a bunch of these things. And then for everything that you do in e-commerce, there's more rabbit holes to go down. So then you talk about marketing and you say, well, in our business, there are seven pillars of e-commerce marketing because we know what they are, we know what they we know how to define them and we know how to best utilize them. And I think the more you're around growth, the more you start to try and understand what it is, the more you can create those frameworks. So yeah, we have a whole bunch of stuff which I'll quite happily share, but I don't want to bore you with. No, I'm interested. I Well, basically, my dad tried to groom me as a royal officer, as a naval officer. Okay. So for 10 years, I was in the cadets and I learned a lot about leadership, you know, from a theory point of view. We all, we obviously did like exercises where you have to like, you know, tell like shout at 50 people and get them to do what you want in a polite or an aggressive way. So, you know, we learned things like, you know, laissez-faire, letting people just like disperse and decentralize or like being democratic. Or being mm-hmm. like autocratic and just like no my way or the highway, but that was always within the context of like a very unsafe versus safe environment. It's like you know, get these fifty guys across a river with just a rope. That's where you kind of need to shout at people. Maybe, maybe not. That was a trick question. You don't want to shout at people. Um, but I, <laughs> I feel like I feel like in you know a maybe. business, it's very much like calm peaks of stress. So yeah, I am interested in the leadership things. I'm interested in how you how you manage people. If somebody's concerned, if somebody's upset, like these are important parts of, of the business, you know, the business is made up of people. Yeah, it is. And if you didn't have people, you wouldn't have problems is a reality. You know, any, <laughs> yeah. any, any problem you've got is usually rooted in people. You know, leadership is a really interesting idea and it's a really interesting concept, isn't it? And, and there are, I think there are different styles of leadership for different times. So the classic one is, is the old command and control, which is very, very, very military, right? So I'm at the top of the chain and I'm telling the person next, you know, below me in that chain what to do. And they're telling the person down there and it, it cascades down and you have these orders. And it's like, you have to obey those orders because it come from the top. And so when I grew up in the 80s, this was the style of leadership in most companies, as in I'm the boss, you're the worker, you do what you're told. 
just mm. be grateful you've got a job, you know, those kind of things. I think the world's a very different place now. And there are some very different styles of leadership now. And I think sometimes pendulums, you know, they swing, don't they? And sometimes they swing too far the other way. And it, I've been in organizations where they were like, well, we don't actually want a leader. We just want to, we just want to, you know, we'll work as a Flat team. hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. And you're just kind of like, well... I get that. I get why you'd want that. We even did it ourselves in Jersey for a little while. But fundamentally, somebody still at the end of the day needs to make a decision and they need to be accountable for that decision and they need to be behind it. Like with all these things, there's a happy medium that seems to work. My general theories on leadership are if you treat people how you want to be treated, they'll be your friends for life, right? And if you don't, they're they're not interested. And so we always have... I say always, one of the big lessons that we learned, especially when we had like 50 odd staff in the business, you always hire on the basis of values, not just competency. We developed this thing where the way I explained it was I I sort of drew drew a crosshairs on a piece of paper and on the vertical axes, I was tracking competence. On the horizontal axes, I was tracking culture. If I looked at a person in the organization, vertically, I would map out how competent are they at their job? How good are they? And on the horizontal axis, I'd map out how aligned to the culture of the company they were. And that gave you a really interesting quadrant. So you had people in the upper right quadrant. So these were very competent people and very culturally aligned people. These were your absolute superheroes. These were the people that made a massive difference to your business. You looked after these people, right? Mm -hmm. So anybody in that superhero section, you just go, you know, whatever it takes, let's just make sure that, you know, things are working well here. Where a lot of businesses struggle is if you think about this quadrant. So if you've got someone who's highly competent, but very low cultural alignment, so their top left quadrants, we call these guys, and I appreciate this is not very PC, we called them terrorists, right? Because these were the guys that were your archetypal salesperson. They, they were all about getting whatever it was they wanted. They were really good at their job, but, you know, sod everybody else, sod the consequences. We don't care about that department over there and what they've got to deal with because I've done this over here. I've done this over here because I'm really good at my job. Do you see what I mean? And these are the people that um, bosses are very, very reluctant to let go because they often are high performing. And so they don't necessarily want to lose that performance in the industry, in their company. But really, hand on heart, they want to let them go because they're terrorists in the organization. They cause mayhem and chaos wherever they go. And so this was a really eye-opening thing for me. And if you had people in the bottom right quadrant, so they were highly culturally aligned, but not very competent. Well, so then the question was, well, can I train these people? Because I can't teach culture, right? You just can't. So I've got someone who fits the criteria of culture, but can I train them? to get better, yes or no. They became a really interesting pool of people for us. So we had a, um, so there's a guy who works for us now, a guy called Josh. He's just recently gone part-time, right? So he's, 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 he's graphics, he's video, okay? He's a really cool guy, very hipster, lovely guy. I love the bones off him, think he's awesome. Josh came to work for us because the coffee shop he was working at went, went under. And so he came and worked in the warehouse, picking and packing. And it became really obvious to everybody from quite an early, you know, an early kind of time. He was very culturally aligned with us. You know, his, his, his values seemed to mesh with the values of the business quite well. And one day I just happened to be talking to Josh and he just, he mentioned to me that he had a really interesting graphic design and he did it at, um, for A-level or something. And I said, well, have a go at this. 
see what you think. It wasn't long before Josh transitioned out of the warehouse to doing graphics, to then doing video. A lot of it is self-taught. He's not got any formal qualification, but it's actually really good. He's now gone part-time for us and is setting up his own graphic design business part-time and he's getting his own clients in. And for me, this is a brilliant story of someone who was very culturally aligned. And the question was, can we train them? Can we educate them? And yes, we can. And Josh has been much better for us as a company than me going hiring some graphic superstar at a, at a crazy salary who was not culturally aligned with us as a business. Does that make sense? No, it makes complete sense. I've actually had the same trajectory at, my, at To Beautify. The thing that you're doing and the thing that Ricky is doing at the CEO is that like you're showing Josh and me, you value loyalty. Mm-hmm. And you're going to reward that loyalty and you're going to give him a break. He's working in a warehouse. He's like, this is kind of okay, but uh, I've got dreams. I've got aspirations. He tells you that and you go, well, I'll give you a shot. I'll give yeah. you some time, paid time to, to grow. So he's probably going to stick around with you for a while because he, you know, he's going to remember that and be grateful for it. And yeah. he's going to make yeah. you good videos for it. Yeah. And the guy's a legend. You know, he's yeah. an absolute legend. Love having him around. And I, I, it's good to be helping him with his business. So by the way, if anyone needs any graphic design work, let me know because Josh is freelance and he's a cool guy. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's it's awesome to be able to tell those stories, you know. And so I would say 90% of the people we've employed have been phenomenal people because we we moved to this system of, of tracking culture. The way that we did this was really funny. Whenever we advertised a job, and I remember once we advertised a job, got 400 applications. What am I supposed to do with 400 applications? It's just crazy. Make them run a race. Yeah, I should do something like that. So what we did was we said, right, well, when we advertise a job in future, we're going to give people an application form to fill in. And so that's just going to be our standard response. And so out of those 400 people going forward, probably 350 of them won't be bothered to fill out the application because that's going to require some effort, right? It's not just a case of sending me an email and a blank CV or whatever it is, you know, I just, it's going to require some effort on their part. So that's what we did. And in the application form, because we wanted the application form was all about testing values rather than competence. And so we were asking questions like, what was the last book you read? What did you get out of that book? If you were going to be a superhero, who would you be? What would your name be? What would your superpowers be? And here's a box to draw the costume of you as a superhero. (laughs) I would love to see what that looks like. right? So people are going to get this application form and go, what in the world am I? There's just, and those people that wouldn't fill it in were never going to be culturally a fit for us as a company. And so this became a very, it filtered people out now, and it was really amazing. And I remember one guy, <laughs> I remember once I was in Jersey, on the island of Jersey, and I got a phone call from a lady called Rach, who used to work for us. And Rach, beautiful lady, she called me up and said to me, Matt, you're not going to believe what's going on here. Now, I want you to know, we were advertising a a marketing job at this point, right? And so people had applied for the job. We'd send them back the application form, say, listen, don't send us your CV. I don't care. I just want you to fill this in as a first port of call, right? The day that she called me was deadline day. So it was the closing day for people to, to submit their application form. And this was really before FaceTime was a thing and Zoom calls were a thing because it was a shame really. But she called me and said, you are not going to believe what it is I am seeing. And she said, I'm going to describe to you what I'm seeing. And so she said, outside the office is somebody knocking on the door or ringing the bell, dressed up as Batman. And Batman has in his hands a case of cupcakes. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so they went down and answered the door to Batman with the cupcakes. And basically, someone who had applied for the job had convinced their friend to dress up as Batman and to deliver their applications with the cupcakes, all based on this superhero stuff that we were asking about in the in the uh, application form. And I thought, well, that's memorable. That's they sent their memorable. friend, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they didn't come themselves. themselves. No, no, no. That's they an interesting them. twist. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I guess she didn't want to dress up as Batman. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, it was just fascinating to me that, just like I say, when you put stuff out there and say, like, these are our values, these are our culture, you'll get people who will really vibe with that and you'll get people who won't. And the people who won't, you just don't want to employ them. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, Batman. Batman came to the door with a job application. Yeah, that's a good leadership lesson, I guess. Is like that is. It's um, if you want to be a good leader, being a good leader, ninety percent of it is having a good team. If you've got good people to lead, they bring out the best in you, and you bring out the best in them. If you've got you know crazy people which you're leading, or you've got people who are just they don't care. They if people don't want to be led, I don't care how good a leader you are, you're always going to struggle, right? Half the battle is hiring good people. Just want to pivot. You've you've ran these multiple different types of businesses. Uh, I know that you've worked with like Bentley and Land Rover. You've also worked with everyday people buying your products. Do you have any lessons or stories from you know working with a unique client or a unique customer? That's a beautiful question, and I and I can literally go through everybody I've worked with and go, "This is what I learned from them. This is what I learned from them." One of the most memorable lessons wasn't really to do with e-commerce. There's a guy. This was back in the day when I was working selling saunas and steam rooms, right? This was my sort of first job with Simon, the entrepreneur that I wanted to be mentored by. And one of our clients was a chap called Albert Goubet. Now, Albert, um, or AG as I called him, uh, he's sadly passed away. The man is a very divisive character. People either loved him or they hated him. Very polarizing, but he was extraordinarily wealthy. I mean, extremely wealthy. One of the most wealthy people I know or new. AG, in some respects, became a bit of a mentor to me, and I'd hang around with him quite a bit. I never forget. I said to him, I said, AG, listen, why don't you? And I was young. I was maybe in my mid-20s at this point. I said to him, I said, AG, why don't you write a book, like an autobiography or something like that? I said, I'll I'll sit, I'll, I'll, don't, I'll give my time. I'll sit down, ask you all the questions, take all the stories down, I'll write it down. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing, but it would be one interesting project to hear all the story. I won't tell you the reasons why he was never going to write the book because that would be unfair. But I said, I said, so I said to him, what would you call the book? And he said to me, the title of the book would be Everything Costs Nothing. It's a, it's a really interesting idea. And I'm like, this is the guy that built um, QuickSave back in the 60s. This was a guy that built a business on the basis of if I don't take the baked beans off the pallet and leave them on the pallet, then I save myself X amount of pounds in labor and people can just help themselves. Why do I need to put them on neat shelves? I can just put them on the pallet. And this whole idea of cost saving was born. AG was extraordinarily wealthy. I don't actually know how much money he had when he passed away, but it would have been hundreds and hundreds of millions, right? I mean, the guy was, he had a few quid, but I would sit down with him and he'd go, Matt, or call me Matty. Matty, do you want a cup of tea? I'd say, AG, I'd love a cup of tea. We'd go into the kitchen. The first thing he would do would be he would empty the kettle of water mm-hmm. and he would put in the kettle exactly two cups of water because... I, I do the same thing. Well, especially now electricity is as crazy as it is in prices, right? But this was his mentality. I mean, the guy could have fired, afford to buy an electric company, but it's just 
he's just boiling two cups of water. He didn't have light switches anywhere. It was all light sensors. So if you weren't in the room for a while, the lights went off because why would I leave him on and pay money? Do you know what I mean? And his whole attitude towards money was, I'm going to buy what I need to buy, but I am going to I'm going to make sure I don't spend anything I need to spend. Does that make sense? When you multiply this out, I knew him because he had a chain of health clubs. And um, I remember sitting there in a meeting with him one day. We're just chatting away. And he just, he goes, oh, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. I've had an idea. And he calls up a guy who managed the swimming pools for his gyms. And he said, listen, if we change this to this on this machine, this setting on this machine, what would happen? And the guy on the other end of the phone goes, oh, it would would use less energy for this. And he went, how much energy would we not use? And he wrote it down on his notebook in front of him. And he said, brilliant, make the setting. And he put the phone down. He said, Matty, I've just gone and saved me half a million a year. That's an extra half a million pounds I'm going to make because of that one single conversation. He was obsessed, obsessed with watching costs, rightly or wrongly. Some people like this kind of concept, some people don't. But I, I learned at that point, I, I don't get me wrong, I'm not as obsessed as AG by any stretch of the imagination on that, which is probably why I don't have as much money as he had. But I learned then from him, actually, the way you spend money matters, and it matters a lot. Even, even the pennies matter. And I think the more money you have, the more you realize, actually, the way you spend money matters. That was a really interesting lesson for me. The second thing he taught me, actually, you've got me off on one now, Connor. I remember all the conversations with AG. Good, good. I remember asking him, I said to him, AG, if you had to start over again today, you lost everything and you had to build a business, what would you do? Because I was really curious to know what a man of his standing and understanding would, would say. And he said to me, he said, I'd do exactly what I did. I'd start a supermarket. And I said, you'd start a supermarket from scratch. Even though we've got Asda and Tesco and Walmart and all these big shopping places that's what i said it's really competitive that as an industry why would you do that and he went because it's what i know and because everybody has to eat and it's like <laughs> i was like i couldn't argue with the man's logic it's like Best i've principles. got a customer base i know it i know how to sell things to those that's what i'd do and i was like that's fascinating to me absolutely fascinating so yeah, AG was probably the first, probably billionaire, I don't know, guy that I hung around with a lot that really taught me a whole bunch of stuff. But like, honestly, I could go through everybody I've worked with and go, yeah, we learned that from that from that person. Do you keep a journal yourself? Yeah, I'm an avid journaler. I love to journal. I don't journal every day, but pretty much, you know, four or five times a week I'm journaling. Uh, wow. And it's usually nice. the first thing I do in the morning. So get straight out of bed, get myself a glass of ice water. Um, and I'll sit down at the table and I'll just journal for half an hour before anything else, before I see the kids for anything. I just, whatever's in my head just, just comes out. And I found that's a good time of day for me. I'm at a life stage where I don't, you know, I, I can do that. My kids are a little bit older, so I don't need to get up and look after them now. Like I, I did before I journal in the evenings, but I've just found journaling for me now is better in the mornings. Now I, I, I'm, I'm sort of at that life stage, but yeah, journal all the time. Wicked. That's inspiring to hear. I'm probably about once a week. Do it five, more. Five times a week is good. Do it more. Honestly, people always say, should I journal on the on in a notebook? Should I journal on a, on an app? I'm like, do whatever, whatever works, works for, for you. you. Right? Just I do both. I have pens, papers, always I've always always take notes. Even as we're talking, I've been taking notes. And uh, in the morning I'm on the on an app. So whatever works for you, you just say. Just do whatever works, but just get it out. And it's it's unbelievable how well it works for me. I'm going to pivot back because I wanted to ask you this earlier. 
with your coaching and all of these lessons that you kind of distilled, do you ever get the inkling or the kind of like drive to just start more companies like you once did? Or do you find now you're a bit older and you're kind of like, I'll take the back seat and I'll just share the wisdom? No, I, for me, the thrill is always in the startup. I think the reason I haven't got as many companies now or I don't start as many companies now is because I've learned, I think one, I don't have the energy for it that I used to have to have all those different companies. But also I think I've learned for me actually focusing more energy into one thing at this phase of my life is better than focusing less energy into 10 things, if that makes sense. So I, I really like my life at the moment. We have Orion, which is has got sort of three sections to it, three parts. It's got um, our Dunfew e-commerce service. It's got our media company, which is we were talking about earlier, is the podcast stuff that we do. And it's got our own e-commerce websites. I'm I'm stoked with that. We do the coaching, the consulting, all that's done through Orion, and and it's a beautiful thing. And I I I just I, I love it. And the people that work for me are really shining. And so am I taking a back seat? I think I probably am. I think there's better people in our business doing the work. And I I I buy the ice creams. That's what I do. <laughs> you know, and and, it, and everyone in the office is happy as a result. So with Orion, you've got the Jersey framework and the mm-hmm. collab project. If I'm a guy coming in, I want to grow, learn things from you. How Can you explain how those things work? Yeah, it does have the framework, the Jersey, what was called the Jersey framework. We don't call it the Jersey framework anymore because I'm not allowed to use the term Jersey since I've sold Jersey True. Uh, beauty company. So we just call it the e-commerce framework now. I'm sure actually Mark, the guy that bought the business would have, wouldn't have an issue with it. I just, it's just neater. So yeah, we've got the framework. If people want to learn stuff, the podcast is a great place to go. You know, there's a lot of e-commerce learning there. And we're just about to launch something called Cohort. For, for a number of years, I did something called the e-commerce masterclass, which was basically an online course that people could come and I would walk them through the framework in the course. And it was great. And we had loads of people go through it. Lots of good reviews. But the thing about online courses is I, I'm just not convinced they work that well. I have to be honest. Uh, having looked at the stats, you know, not just for my course, but for all the online courses since COVID, since, you know, the whole thing with lockdown. And so cohort is, it's a much better space, I think, because what it is, it's a monthly sprint. We call them lightweight uh, guided monthly sprints. And so uh, every month you, we focus on one specific area of e-commerce and that area is different in, in every month. It follows a framework, which means you don't get siloed in e-commerce, which was that was my biggest danger with Jersey Beauty Company. In 2012, um, I nearly lost everything overnight. It happened because we were we were turning over millions every year, but 95% of our sales were through one particular brand of product. And at the start of 2012, that brand came to us and said, we're changing our pricing policy. So from now on going forward, the idea is the more you buy, the more you pay. And given that I was their biggest world, well, one of their biggest worldwide customers, that had tremendous impact. It meant that our prices went up by 30% overnight. And I just, you know, customers started to sort of disappear. We lost 50% of our business within a couple of months of them making that decision. And whilst I can, you know, at the time I was very angry with the supplier uh, and I can I can sit here and wax lyrical about the bizarreness of it um, or the genius of it. I'm not quite sure which one it is still. What I can do is I can sit here and say, you know what, as an e-commerce business, we got siloed. We became really, really good at one or two things. And I neglected all the other areas of e-commerce. And as a result of that, when those suppliers came along, we were just unprepared. And it nearly cost us everything. 
And so this is part of the reason why, for me, the framework is a big deal, why cohort is a big deal, where we go through that framework. And because I never, as a business, want to get siloed again. I never want to, to have that happen. I've seen it happen, not just for me, but for countless other businesses around the world, actually. And so cohort takes you through these sort of areas of e-commerce. We focus, like I say, on one specific area every month. It's all at your own learning. It's pretty lightweight, light touch. It's a mixture of coaching and workshops, peer-to-peer learning. And that, for me, is 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 the best way to get involved. Uh, it's, it's a, I'm really proud of it, to be fair, um, and then how it's going to work. I think it's sort of, it's online courses, but much better, if that makes sense. Part of the problems you've got with courses is when you buy an online course, like our masterclass was nine hours of teaching. You look at that and you go, when am I going to fit nine hours into my life to watch this, right? Because everyone's really busy. So there's overwhelm because not only have you got to watch it, you've then got to figure out how in the hell am I going to take that and apply it to my business? I mean, it's great what you're saying, but how does that work for me? And so there's all these issues that people have. So we were like, well, what would happen if we cut out all that teaching and we just did like a 30-minute coaching session at the start of a sprint? And it's not really, we're not really telling you our theory of stuff. We're asking you questions about your business, a bit like I do when I do coaching and consulting. And it's so you can understand how these things work for your business. We, go, we are going to do workshops. So we get experts that come in. So you just take uh, influencer marketing. We were talking about this earlier, which is why it's sort of top of mind, but you take something like influencer marketing. So we'll have an, an expert in influencer marketing do a workshop, which will be like an, a max sort of 45 minute hour long session, but it'll be broken into sort of 10-minute segments, if that makes sense. So again, very bite-sized, very accessible. Um, we're going to do live Q&As with the experts. And then you'll sort of, the end of the, the sprint, the, like the final week of the sprint is, right, I've got a list of actions that I want to implement in my business. This is what I know I need to do for influencer marketing. So you post those to the group, you post those to community, and there's the support and feedback that comes with that from your peers, right, which go, Oh yeah, that's that's great. Have you thought about this? Or I can put you in touch with that person or so on and so forth. And so that everyone's there to try and help you do. We're all there to try and help each other do better um, in their business. And so yeah, I'm really really psyched by by cohort. That is really making an online course better because you can sit in front of a. I mean, I think an analogy that I probably um, have experienced is like when I make a client video for a business, they have all these like prior learnings that they understand about video but then i come in as the you know the professional and you just ask them questions and that that really just like changes the whole game you know you Mm. just ask something simple like what's the goal of the video and they haven't even thought of that it's like i want a video from a business put it on the website but it's like what do you want people to do when they watch it what do you want people to feel when they watch it do you want is it like do you want call to action even if it's like subliminal and i've made like courses on how to make videos and courses on how to do bike packing. But like at the end of the day, like you've just said, are people going to sit down and watch them? <laughs> I don't know, maybe. I would like to do that. That's such a such a good lesson to just like get in touch with people, have the conversation. And then, of course, it's going to be much more targeted to them and their business. So well, I'm glad I asked. I thought that masterclass is, is quite common. So that's good that you're doing it. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and for, for highly motivated individuals, they still work and they still work well. I still buy courses. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm an, I'm an, you know, and I, I still I, I still am involved, but I, I rarely complete them. And I just mm. go for the bit that I'm interested in. Whereas these sort of cohort type things that I've been in, I'm just like, these, these things are brilliant. 
They're, they're much more lightweight, much more light touch. They don't demand as much of me, but I get much more results out of it. And it's an ongoing monthly thing. So this month, I might not want to do it. If you're like me, I take August off, right? That's my my thing. I'm taking August off. So if go I see the coach, fringe, say again, it goes to the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's what I didn't know. I'm going to Jersey. Um, but um, I'll take August off. And it's that kind of, well, if I take August off, that's fine. I'll just miss the sprint for this month. It's not a problem. And I'll just pick it up next month. It's not like I've missed. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's stuff that fits around me and my business. And so um, I think it's much more accessible. And I think you get much better results at the end of it. But that's, that's me. That's how I learn. And that's how I get the most out of these types of things. When you're teaching or coaching e-commerce CEOs, do you find that, like you just said, like people learn differently? Like, do you have to, you know, be a bit kind of hard line on some people? Because there must be young, arrogant guys like me who just think they know how to do everything. <laughs> to be fair, most of the people you do coaching with um, are pretty open. Well, no, they're not e-commerce CEOs. That's a misconception. So they tend to be just CEOs. And so what tends to happen is you have, you have a company like um, Chandra, for example. They're a client of mine. They're a pharmaceutical company and e-commerce is part of what they do. So Chandra gets me involved to help the e-commerce team. And he's a CEO. He doesn't understand an awful lot about uh, e-commerce. He knows he needs to understand it. He knows his business needs to be better in it. And so he comes to me and says, right, we need your help. I need your help getting this team set up. I need your help getting this up and running. This is what I need to know. They tend to be better clients, I think, for us. We don't tend to get many startups coming to us for consulting because it's quite an expensive thing. Um, you get startups watching the course, although, you know, maybe become part of the cohort. This is why I'm excited about cohort, because I think if you're an e-commerce entrepreneur, cohort is ideal. But again, I, 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 I get it that, you know, a lot of us are in e-commerce, we're like, especially if our business is good and growing, it's like, why do I need a coach? Why do I need consulting? I just, I just don't. I just, I know what I'm doing. I need to be telling you what to do. You don't need to be telling me what to do. It tends to be people who are slightly removed from it. And I'm just thinking through clients now, they all tend to be slightly older, as in they're not in their 20s. You do go through this phase in life. Certainly, I do. I'm talking from my point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go through this when you're 18, sort of in your early 20s. I know everything right? I just know everything. And then I got married and I found out I didn't know everything. <laughs> In fact, far from it. And then I had kids and I, I realized I knew even less than I thought I knew. And so now I'm in my 40s. I'm like, there's actually not a whole great deal that I do know. What I know, I know well. Uh, and one of the things I know well is that to acknowledge the fact that I don't know stuff and go and get help <laughs> in that area, which is why I still buy courses. It's why I still do coaching. Um, we have a podcast agency, but I still go and get podcast coaches to come to us and coaches in how we do our podcast because I realize actually it's it's a beautiful thing to do. And they the coaches and consultants, just like you with your videos, they just know how to ask the right questions. And the questions aren't rocket science. When you say to them, how do you want someone to feel when they watch the video? This is not like yeah. an earth-shattering question, is it? I mean, it's and to you, it's obvious. And in fact, to the guy who asked the question, in, if he thought about it for 30 seconds, it becomes obvious to him. And he sits and he goes, oh, man, why am I not thought about that? Of course it's obvious. I need to understand what it is they want to feel. But I've just not answered because you become so tunnel-visioned and focused in what you're doing. And I think a good coach... Good consultant just gets you to lift your head 
and asks you questions, which you know you should be asking yourself, but for whatever reason, you don't when it's your own business. It's okay. Okay. So do you have any tips for your 18-year-old self? To my 18-year-old self, that's a very good question. I would say a number of different things. One is people matter more than you think. Getting them on board and getting the buy-in from people is actually really important. And you don't get buy-in from people by telling them your idea. It has to be more than that. I think I tell my 18-year-old self, you know what? It's going to be okay. You're going to make it. You're going to do all right. Um, because there's, I think, that anxiety when you're a teenager, that you know, that need to have to prove yourself in life a little bit. It's like, I wonder is. And I think if I, honestly, if I met myself when I was 18, I'd probably just take him aside and just go, Matt, listen, it's going to be okay. You're going to do all right. And if there's one thing that I'll tell you to do, it's probably buy Bitcoin when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? But other than that, I have lots and lots of regrets, but I wouldn't try and avoid them because of the lessons that you learn when you go through them. You know, if some of the tragedy and some of the, 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 the bad things that have happened along the way have really shaped who I am today and where I'm at today. So whilst I'm not thankful that it happened, I'm thankful that I came through it, if that makes sense. And I think you can learn through all of those kind of things. So yeah, I think that would be it. You're going to be okay and buy Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I struggle with that with my uh, younger brother. I kind of see all the things that he's doing that are in my eyes like a mistake because I've done the same thing and I've gone, well, I did that too. And I learned that this is the better way to do it. You can sit there and you can berate that younger person and try and guide them, but you kind of also want them to just experience it because then they're yeah. really going to remember the lesson. People have to figure stuff out, right? And you learn this a lot when you're a parent. It's like you can tell kids what to do or you can and half the time they don't listen to you anyway, to be fair. You don't, you never listen to your parents. I never really listen to mine. So why do I expect the world to be any different when I'm a parent? Do you know what I mean? It's yep. just ridiculous. The best thing I can do as a dad is to give them advice. And advice usually doesn't mean telling them that they're stupid. It usually means asking them a few questions and just going, you know what? But you go for it here if you need me. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Nice. It's like, and it's one of those actually where if it goes wrong, I'm not going to bail you out necessarily. I'm just going to tell you, you've got this. Because actually, it's in those hard places that you're going to really, really learn some interesting stuff. So yeah, I, I, I can see that. You know, I was the same way when I came back. Uh, I was telling my my young brother all the time what to do when I was in my early twenties. He didn't listen to a single thing that I said. Uh, and now in my forties, I've given up. I'm just like I'm just going to ask questions uh, because people need to figure stuff out for themselves. And the best way to do that just ask questions. Well, that's a lovely way to end it. Thanks for coming onto the show. That was really nice to speak to you, Matt. Where can people find you? Where would you like to send these listeners? Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's not the normal conversation I have with people, actually, when they bring me onto a podcast. So thank you for the questions. If people want to know more about me, if they want to reach out, just hit me up at mattedmondson.com. Simple as that. And everything's on there, all the social media links, everything. Uh, and just come on along, say hi, and tell me where you heard about it. And I'd love to meet you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Debutify Podcast. If you want to be part of the show, just email us podcast at debutify.com or head over to debutify.com to learn more. Have a great day and good luck with everything.